pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's New Year's Eve, and in our society, that means it's time for New Year's resolutions. I have a graph of the most popular New Year's resolutions heading into 2022 in the U.S., and none of these resolutions will probably be surprising to you. The top resolutions were to exercise more, eat healthier, and lose weight. Now, all the goals on the list are good within reason, but one thing that strikes me from it is that none of them directly address the most important relationship for us as human beings, which is our relationship with God. As Christians, our highest priority is our relationship with God, and everything else is meant to be an extension of that primary relationship. Our message then is going to focus on prayer, because the scriptures make it clear that there is no way to have an intimate or meaningful relationship with God without a healthy prayer life. Now, Few things are easier to do as a preacher than to make Christians feel guilty about the amount of time that they invest in prayer. And so I want to be clear up front, that's not my goal. Instead, I hope you'll leave today with a deeper desire to seek God in prayer and some basic direction for how to do that based on Jesus' teaching. Our outline is going to follow the text and break it into two main points. We're going to look at the motivation for prayer and the model for prayer. So if you're taking notes, It's the motivation for prayer and the model for prayer. For our first main point, listen again to verse 5. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by people. Notice here, there can be bad motives for prayer. The bad motive specifically cited by Jesus is that his not primarily, or it's prayer that is not primarily meant to be heard by God, but seen by other people. The religious leaders of Jesus' time loved to do this, looking to impress others with their long and eloquent prayers, and it's possible for believers to be tempted in this way as well. I want to mention just one other common bad motivation that I've observed in my soul and in working with other Christians, and it's guilt avoidance or, from another angle, self-righteousness. This is prayer primarily based on a sense of duty where your motive to pray is simply to avoid guilt or because you desire to feel like a respectable Christian. Now, guilt is a powerful motive, but the desire to justify ourselves, it's the very thing that Jesus came to save us from. And if guilt and self-righteousness is all that's motivating your prayer life, then your prayers are going to be like that of the Pharisees. They're actually going to push you further away from God instead of bringing you closer to him. So, Those are bad motivations for prayer. But there are many good motivations as well. And Jesus highlights the greatest of these in verse 6, saying, But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In contrast to the Pharisees' hypocritical prayers, Jesus commands his followers to have a private prayer life with time set apart specifically to pray alone to their Father in heaven. Now, what's the motivation for this private prayer life? The greatest motivation for private prayer and all prayer is God himself. We see this when Jesus says, pray to your Father who is in secret. What does it mean that the Father is in secret? God is omnipresent. It's not like he's hiding in your closet. He's not, he's not accessible anywhere else. No, Jesus is indicating that you can encounter and experience God in a special way when you seek him alone in prayer. 
Think about it this way based on verses 7 through 8. We don't primarily pray to convince God to give us the earthly things that we want, but because we want to know God himself in greater ways. Jesus says the, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, they, they, they pray and they heap up all these words, and it's like they think they can somehow persuade God if they pray long enough to give them what they want. And Jesus says, your father already know, knows what you need before you ask. And so many Christians say, then why pray at all? And the point is not the things that you get. God wants to draw you to himself. He wants you to experience him. He, he sovereignly set it up so that, that you can watch him answer prayers in your life, see him responding to your faith. Christians pray because walking with God is the only thing that can satisfy our souls. And so we pray, trusting him to provide for us and to direct us and to help us honor him with our lives. This desire to know God and glorify him is what motivates and sustains a healthy prayer life, which is necessary to sustain a healthy Christian. Prayer is therefore a vital spiritual discipline or ordinary means of grace. And I found that a, a more helpful category personally, as long as it's distinguished from the false Roman Catholic idea of grace. The reason that I like the term ordinary means of grace is that when I hear the phrase spiritual disciplines, my mind, it always focuses on the word discipline, aka what I am supposed to do. The danger in this is that the spiritual disciplines are similar to, but not identical to our physical disciplines. Paul does compare pursuing God to an athlete training in a gym. And the Bible is explicit that following Christ, it does involve our effort. But there are also differences between the spiritual and physical disciplines. For example, when someone lifts weights consistently, as long as they do it with the appropriate amount of weight in good form, you know, all other things equal, they're going to get stronger regardless of their motivation whether they're doing it to get, to get healthier, to become a varsity athlete or imp impress a girl, whatever the reason, they're still going to get stronger if they simply do the exercise. That's not true of the spiritual disciplines. Remember the Pharisees, they prayed religiously, but they actually, that actually hardened their heart towards God instead of drawing them nearer to him. That's why I find the phrase ordinary means of grace helpful. The phrase, it emphasizes that our spiritual growth as Christians, it's not something we earn or accomplish independent of God, but it's still a work of God that he does in us. It's a work of grace. Now, this doesn't mean that we have no role to play in our spiritual growth and, and should passively assume that God will randomly mature us regardless of how we live. No, the ordinary means of grace are the promised channels of continuing grace that are received as we practice them by faith. This would be the same definition I would give for spiritual disciplines. The ordinary means of grace, they're the promised channels of continuing grace that are received as we practice them by faith. They're the specific places that God has promised in his word to meet with and transform believers who are seeking him. And the most fundamental of these is gathering with other believers in the local church to worship, studying God's word, and prayer. I have a, a picture here of a channel of water in the desert. And the idea of the spiritual disciplines, the means of grace, the reason we call them the ordinary means of grace is because God, he can, he can work in our lives however he wants. He is God. God gives us grace in all kinds of different ways. But the beauty of the ordinary means of grace is God says, if you want me, if you really want me, seek me here. Put yourself, put yourself here. And over time, 
you'll experience my grace. David Mathis, in his helpful book, Habits of Grace, he puts it this way. I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but he has given us circuits to connect and pipes to open expectantly. There are paths along which he has promised his favor. Do you understand how liberating this is? If you view the spiritual disciplines as mere activities that you use to change yourself, if the disciplines are primarily about your effort, they will become superficial religious duties that will either make us self-righteous like the Pharisees when we feel like we're keeping them, or they'll feel like a burden when we fail to be consistent. But when we understand that what we ultimately need is God to work in us, for him to continue to, to change us by his grace and that he promises to do that through these ordinary channels, these ordinary means of grace over time. It transforms these activities from a burden into a channel of blessing, a channel to the greatest blessing of knowing God more intimately. Now, let me say two other things here before we move on. First, as important as prayer is, a healthy prayer life can never be disconnected from God's word. The Bible is where God speaks to us. It's where he reveals who he is and what to expect from him. And so if you do not consistently listen to him through his word, your prayer life will be inevitably weak. One of the best illustrations of this is the way that babies learn to talk. Humans only learn to speak because they are spoken to. The children who had no socialization growing up, they don't just automatically speak the language that their parents do. And my kids, they speak English not because they were born U.S. citizens. They speak English because my wife and I, we speak English to them. That's how they learn to talk. That's how all of us learn to talk. And in the same way, a clear and healthy prayer life develops only as one listens to God speak through his word and learns who God is and how to interact with him through that. Practically, what this means is that if you want to connect with God more deeply in prayer, but you don't have a daily habit of studying his word, then you need to begin to get in the Bible regularly as well. If you already have a reading plan that is working well for you, that's great. But if you don't, a simple place to start would be to read through the New Testament in 2024. If you read just a, a chapter a day that usually takes around five to 10 minutes, if you do that starting in the Gospel of Matthew and you work your way on through, you'll be able to finish the whole New Testament by early next fall, and hopefully that'll help you develop a lifelong commitment to studying God's Word. The second thing to mention is that prayer, even when rightly motivated, can at times feel dry and like a chore. Just like learning a language takes time and practice, the same is true with prayer, but it is worth it. After community group a couple of weeks ago, one of my friends, he went downstairs and he played the Charlie Brown Christmas song on the piano. And my kids, it blew their mind. Like they were so impressed by how good it sounded, how smooth he was. And we talked afterwards about, you know, he made it look so easy. He made it look effortless. But that's only because he spent years and years and years practicing as a child. In a similar way, prayer, it used to, to regularly feel like a duty to me. I remember praying at times and feeling like, I probably prayed for like two hours, and you check your 
Your watch is like five minutes. <laughs> Has that ever happened to you? Like what? But honestly, by God's grace, I can say I can't imagine my life without prayer now. I cannot imagine it. It's consistently the most refreshing and fulfilling time of my day. And, and often, but I get a chunk of time and I'm excited. And by the end, I'm like, I wish I had twice as much time. I wish I didn't have to go to my other responsibilities. My hope is that you won't be discouraged if prayer at times feels frustrating or like you're just talking to yourself because we see in the Psalms that even authors of scripture, they felt that way at times. And so keep returning to the channels of God's grace by faith. Over time, it will be so worth it. It will be so worth it. God is the greatest motivation for prayer. But how do we pray? How do we pray? That brings us to our second main point, the model for prayer. The first thing to say here is that there is no way we can exhaustively address how to pray today because prayer is so dynamic. It's so all-encompassing. God wants us to learn to pray in, in all of our circumstances and to have a, a running conversation with him throughout the day. So what we're going to do is simply focus on the model Jesus gives us in this passage for how to pray to God when we get alone, like he just instructed us in verses 5 through 8. Picking it up in verse 9, Jesus says, Therefore, you should pray like this. Notice he doesn't say, pray this word for word mindlessly. He says, pray like this. Use this as a pattern or springboard for your prayers. There are deep insights into how we should pray and, and what we should pray about in this passage. If you've never memorized any verses on prayer before, this would be a good one to start with. Let's work, work through what Jesus says together. First, followers of Christ should pray relationally. We should pray relationally. And I would add boldly, because God is our Father. The most important aspect of your entire prayer life is how you view God and his heart towards you. I don't know if you've thought about that before, but by far that is more important than the prayer methods you use or even your specific request. Now keep in mind that, that God is also our king and master and savior and friend and much more, and we need all of the biblical images to fully appreciate our relationship with God. And yet, when Jesus taught his, his followers to pray, he indicated that our prayer life should be shaped most fundamentally by the reality that God is our perfect heavenly father. He didn't teach us to pray our master in heaven, our king in heaven. Those are both true. But when teaching us to pray, he says, our father. Why do you think that is? One of the big reasons is because in a healthy father-child relationship, a child feels comfortable asking their father for whatever they need and often for whatever they want. Isn't that true, parents? You go to the store, you go to the supermarket, your kids, they, they feel comfortable telling you whatever they want. Christmas, they, they tell you what they want. Now, this is much deeper, though, than kids simply asking for food and toys. My kids ask for those things, yes, but they also ask for my attention. They ask me to spend time with them. When I get home at the end of the day, it's normal for me to get asked to color or play soccer or to read or to dance by my kids, often all at the same time. All those requests often come at once. And it's because by God's grace, my kids, they want to spend time with me, even though I'm miles away from being as good a father as I want to be. The connection to prayer 
is that God provides a more secure and satisfying relationship in his love than even the strongest father-child bonds in this life. And he wants us to enjoy that love in our times of prayer. He wants you to become more and more confident that he genuinely wants what's best for you. Do you consistently think of God in this way when you pray? That he's your father who delights in you? If not, follow Jesus' instruction and make it a point of thanking God this year. Every time you spend time, extended time in prayer, thank him that through the gospel, God is your father. You are individually his beloved child and, and he's your father personally. He's not your father in some generic sense, but in the most personal and intimate way. Just like I have a unique relationship with each one of my kids. If you're a Christian, God is uniquely your father. So we should pray relationally. Second, though, we should pray corporately as well or with the rest of our church family in mind. We know this because Jesus does not say to pray my father in heaven. He says to pray our father. This does not contradict the point I just made that Jesus is our father personally, but it expands it to show that believers have a spiritual family in Christ as well. Now, why should we pray with our spiritual family in mind? Well, one reason is that it makes perfect sense when we remember that God's goal for our life is to teach us to love like he does. It's not wrong to pray for ourselves. We see examples of that in the Bible. But one mark of a maturing prayer life is that you faithfully pray for others too, especially other Christians. There are certain prayers that I've regularly prayed for myself for years because I know that God will answer them. I know it's God's will to reveal himself to me and to help me understand his love more deeply. I know he wants me to grow in my capacity to love others like Christ. I know he wants me to have more of an eternal perspective and to teach me how to walk by the Spirit and how to pray and to, to hate sin. But a number of years ago, I, I switched how I prayed through these regular requests. And now I say, God, help us to understand your love more clearly. Help, help us to be able to love more like you. And I made that switch because of what Jesus says here, our Father. And when I pray those things now, I'm, I'm thinking about my family, but I'm also thinking about you. I want us to grow in our love for God. I want us to grow in our maturity as a church. And so this, is, this passage, it has helped me to pray more faithfully for others. Another question for you to consider is, do you regularly pray for the people in your community group and other members of the church? I think one of the, the best ways to, to get to know someone more deeply and to, to encourage unity within the church is to ask people, is there any way that I can pray for you? And then to faithfully do that. This is one very practical way to apply this aspect of Jesus' teaching to prayer in your own life. Third, Jesus teaches us to pray Godwardly. Godwardly. I may have made up that word, so forgive me, but I think it helps with the idea that our focus in prayer should be God himself. Jesus says, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. This is where he starts. God is in heaven. And what this means is that we don't see him now with our eyes. All day long, our eyes and ears and other senses, they're sending information to our brains to be processed. And what we need to understand, what we need to keep in mind is that the most important of all realities in life, they're currently invisible. God the angelic realm, heaven and hell, even your own soul. 
We can't see those now, but they are just as real and important than what we can see. And prayer is one of the few things that helps ground us in these all-important realities. This focus on the unseen centers on God's name, which refers to his character. And so if you want to have a healthy prayer life, you should regularly take time to meditate on and marvel at and praise God just for who he is. Just for who God is, that he's eternal, the only truly eternal one, that he's self-existent, that he's triune, that he's all-knowing, that he's compassionate. The list goes on and on and on. One of the ways that God meets us powerfully in prayer is as his spirit makes us more confident of and impressed by his character and his work. Do you regularly spend time in prayer, not asking God for anything, but just thanking him for who he is? thanking him for what he's already done for you and promises to do. I think that that habit alone is one of the biggest determining factors between those who view prayer as a duty and those who find delight for their souls in it. If you don't have a habit of of just enjoying God in prayer, I'd encourage you just start with five minutes a day. Just five minutes a day, don't ask God for anything. We're usually good at that. Don't ask God for anything. Just thank him. Just thank him for who he is. Thank him for what he's done. Fourth, with the words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus taught us to pray missionally. God is at work in the world, drawing people to himself who delight in his will. And so we don't want to to only pray for ourselves, to only focus on our problems. We should pray for those things, but we should pray for our church to grow. And not just our church, but for all gospel preaching churches. We should pray not just for numerical growth, but for growth in spiritual maturity of all of our brothers and sisters because we know that that is part of the Great Commission. That's God's will. And we should also pray for growth by conversion as we ask God to save and add more people to his kingdom. Fifth, Jesus shows us we should not hesitate to pray practically for our needs with the words, give us today our daily bread. It's not unspiritual to pray for our physical needs to be met, although I want you to notice he doesn't say, give us today our creme brulee. He doesn't say that. So this is, this is far from a prosperity gospel take on prayer. But at the same time, <laughs> at the same time though, it shows God, he cares about our tangible needs. He actually wants us to bring those to him. At times, though, these legitimate requests can dominate our prayer lives and and cause us to lose sight of God himself. And I think that is the reason Jesus places it after the instruction to pray about God's character and kingdom. I heard a a moving true life example of praying for practical needs recently. There was a missionary named Helen Rosevere who was doing medical mission work in Central Africa in the 1950s. And she was left with a tiny newborn baby and her devastated two-year-old sister when their mother died during labor. The nights there, even though they were, they were close to the equator, they got very cold that time of year, and they had no way to keep the infant warm other than with a rubber hot water bottle. But the only one they had, it burst when they filled it up for the newborn. Helen knew the baby could easily die as a result, and when she shared that with the children at the orphanage, a 10-year-old girl named Ruth, she spontaneously prayed this, Please, God, Send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God. The baby will be dead. So please send it this afternoon. Then she added this. And while you're at it, God, could you please send a dolly for the little girl so that you know, so that she'll know you really love her? 
Helen wrote this about that prayer. I gasp inwardly at the audacity of the prayer. As often with children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say amen? I just did not believe that God could do this. Oh, yes, I know that he can do everything. The Bible says so. But there are limits, aren't there? The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending a parcel from the homeland. I had been in Africa for almost four years at that time, and I had never, ever received a parcel from home. Anyway, if anyone did send a parcel, who would put in a hot water bottle? I lived on the equator. However, later that afternoon, a package did arrive. And Helen, she quickly gathered the orphanage children to open it. And what do you think they found? At first, it was just clothes and leprosy leprosy bandages. But then she says, as I put my hand in again, I felt, could it really be? I grasped it and pulled it out. Yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle. I cried. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that he could. Ruth was in the front row of the children. She rushed forward, crying out, if God has sent the bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. Rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out the small, beautifully dressed dolly. Her eyes shone. She had never doubted. Looking up at me, she asked, can I go over with you, mommy, and give this dolly to that little girl so she'll know that Jesus really loves her? Isn't that beautiful? That package was sent five months earlier by her former Sunday school class. One of the girls had put in the doll, and the teacher of the class felt prompted by God to include a hot water bottle. It was sent five months beforehand, but it arrived precisely in time to answer the prayer of a child who was confident that God was her heavenly father and that he could meet any practical needs that were brought to him. True stories like this, they challenge my soul because they remind me that I'm often too quick to assume that God won't answer my prayers if it's not something he specifically promises to do in his word. Now, we'll circle back to that thought in a moment. But let me briefly point out one other aspect to Jesus' model prayer. Verses 12 through 13 say, Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This shows us that we should pray humbly. We should pray humbly, remembering that God never owes us anything because of our sin, and that we're in a spiritual battle and need his guidance and protection from the evil one each and every day. Now, if you understand the gospel, you know that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for and already forgiven. Every time you sin, you don't don't need to persuade God to forgive you in a fresh way. So why does Jesus here teach his followers to ask God for forgiveness? Have you ever thought about that before? I think he instructs us to ask for forgiveness because he knows it's good for our own soul and our relationship with him. For example, when Agatha and I, my wife, when we made our vows before God when we got married and said, I do, we committed the rest of our lives to each other. And by implication, we committed in advance to forgive each other whatever they did. You see that? It's like there there is like a commitment to forgive ahead of time. Now, does that mean we should never ask our spouse for forgiveness when we wrong them? No. Asking forgiveness is vital when we fail to love our spouse, not just for their sake, but to guard against an an entitled attitude ourselves. And similarly, while God has already forgiven all our sin as believers, it is so important. It is so valuable to confess your sins to God. 
because it, it helps keep you from being desensitized to sin. It helps keep you from taking God's grace for, for granted because you have to remember in a fresh way how much it costs God to forgive us. There's so much more that we could say, but this is briefly the model prayer that Jesus left for us as his followers. And I want to take a few minutes to offer some additional practical suggestions. First, schedule a time to pray. Yes, God wants us to pray throughout the day, but Jesus in this passage expects his followers to regularly spend time alone with him in focused prayer. Since we schedule in our priorities, find a time that works best for you, whether it's in the morning when you get up or in the car on the way to work or on a walk during breaks or on a walk during breaks at your job. Whatever it is, you've got to figure that out, what works best for you. Now, some of you are married with young kids. You might need to be creative. You might need to work together. And maybe one of you comes home from work and, and you just have to take over the kids for a while so that your spouse can go and, and get recharged spiritually and connect with the Lord. Whatever works best in your world, block that time off in your schedule each day so you can place yourself in the promised channels of God's grace. Make time to get in those promised channels of God's grace through prayer. If you've never prayed regularly before, just start with five to 10 minutes a day. Just start with something small and sustainable that you can consistently do and build on. For those of you who have a consistent prayer time, God might prompt you to, to build onto that this year, to extend the time you're, you're praying with him. Again, the purpose is not to meet some prayer go, quota or an arbitrary goal, but it's to invest in your relationship with God. Second, find promises in God's word to fuel your prayers. God's promises are given to fuel our faith, especially when we don't feel like obeying him. And since prayer involves a sacrifice of our time and energy, we'll often not feel like praying in the windows of our day that we've set apart for it. Promises like the one in this passage in Matthew 6, they have motivated me countless times to pray when I haven't felt like it. They've encouraged me to, to keep praying or to start praying again when I've failed, when I haven't prayed as faithfully as I intended. And so ultimately, it's been God's promises that have sustained my prayer life over the years. Currently, one of my favorites has been the promise in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Isn't that wonderful? God's heart. He's more excited about relational intimacy with you than you are with him. And over the years, seeking God in prayer, claiming God's promises, I've seen him answer hundreds and hundreds of specific prayer requests. I know God listens to me. God listens to my prayers. The point here is to make sure you have promises like this from God's word to motivate your prayer life. Third, let scripture shape and inspire your prayers. We can pray to God about anything going on in our hearts, but often when it's time to, to pray, Christians can find themselves distracted or feel unsure what to pray about. You know, if you're unsure what to pray, you can use Jesus' model or, or other prayers in the scripture to give you direction and spark new ideas of what to pray about. That's why Jesus gives us this teaching. And my dad, for years, he prayed over Matthew 6 each morning, and he used that to, to help him to pray. Another wonderful place in the scriptures to go for, for deeper prayer times with God are the Psalms. See, in the past, I would usually read the Psalms. I tried to read a Psalm every day, but I would usually read it at the, the end of my time studying scripture. I, I still typically do that. But what I've found is that 
that when I'm distracted, when I sit down to read, especially if, if I'm feeling anxious, if there's emotional weight on me, what I found is it's often hard to concentrate and study a passage of Scripture. And so what I've started to do is when I feel that way, I just start with the Psalms. And one of the reasons is because God has, has given the Psalms, or one of the reasons he's given those to us is so that we can process our emotions with him. And what I found is when I'm distracted, if I try and read, it's difficult. If I just go to the Psalms and use that as a springboard to prayer, I can connect with God. It's so refreshing. It helps me to work through what's going on in my soul. I read a little book a couple of years ago on a similar topic. It's called Praying the Bible. And it is an excellent book for both young believers learning how to pray and also those who have been following the Lord for a long time but often find themselves bored while praying. Christians don't like to admit that. But do you ever get bored praying? One of the reasons this man says we get bored praying is because we pray the same important things which we should pray, but we say we pray the same prayers about the same things in the same way over and over again. And Donald Whitney, he shows that the Psalms, they can help you pray for the same important things, but with fresh, but in fresh new ways and with fresh insights. And this was one of the most helpful books that I've read in the past couple of years. And so we got some copies a while back. We still have a number out in the lobby for sale. And I'd encourage you, if, if you're listening this morning and thinking, I need to invest more in my prayer life, this would be a wonderful step to take to, to get this book and to read it. Just to, to summarize, practically speaking, I'd encourage you as you head into the new year to schedule a time to pray daily, find promises to fuel your prayer times, and let your prayers be shaped and inspired more by the scriptures. Before we close, there's one other urgent question that I need to address. And that is, what about when God doesn't answer our prayers? This is one of the biggest things that undermines the prayer life of Christians. It's the times that, that we did pray desperately. We did pray faithfully and God didn't answer, at least in the way that we wanted this is especially relevant for many of us here because two of our Walnut Creek South members, they had a healthy, beautiful five-year-old daughter who unexpectedly experienced cardiac arrest and went without breathing for close to an hour early Thursday morning. She experienced significant brain swelling and has been in a coma in Iowa City since then. And many of us have been crying out to God to wake her up and to completely heal her. There have been hundreds of of hours spent in prayer for her by our church alone, not including her family and friends. And yet so far, God hasn't answered our prayers. How should we process situations like this as Christians? What should we do? First, we should persevere in prayer, knowing that God's timing is often much different than ours. We should be unashamed to, to ask God to heal her and unashamed to believe that he can but there's still the real biblical possibility that he won't. If he doesn't, then what do we do? Whenever God chooses not to answer our prayers, we must remember the cross. We have to remember the cross. The night before Jesus was crucified, the perfect son of God asked his heavenly father to spare him from the physical and spiritual agony that was directly ahead of him. If anyone ever deserved God to answer their prayer, it was Jesus. But instead of demanding his own way, he humbly prayed, not my will, but your will be done. 
did God the Father answer Jesus' prayer to be spared from the cross? No. No, he didn't. But because Jesus submitted his will to the Father and died on the cross for our sins, we can be forgiven and come to know God as our Father. Jesus' unanswered prayer is why our prayer for salvation can be answered. Don't ever forget that truth. Jesus' unanswered prayer opened up the only way that God could answer our prayer for salvation. The cross is why Christians still trust God and pray to God when he doesn't answer our prayers the way we want, even prayers to, prayers to spare us or loved ones from death. We know that God is not a callous God messing with our lives and emotions. He is a God, even though he's sovereign, who weeps with those who weep. Jesus showed us that as he weeped for Lazarus, knowing that he was going to raise him, knowing he was going to work it for good. While I can't begin to fathom the agony our members are currently going through with their daughter on life support, God can. Do you understand that? God can. The father fully knows their pain because he too has watched his precious child endure the very worst suffering. And Jesus voluntarily endured that painful death to win eternal life for us. The cross allows believers to endure the worst suffering now because we know that God loves us. We know that even when we can't see it, that he's working and pursuing our eternal good and that he'll give us his very own presence and grace to sustain us. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Please pray with me. Lord God, Thank you that, that you desire us to experience you. Thank you that you love us more than we've even begun to grasp. And I thank you that you want us to, to experience that in deeper ways through prayer. God, I, I pray that we would have an increased appetite for you and a desire to, to spend time with you. God, help make us a, a church that's filled with people who are confident in your promises, who are pursuing you. If there are any here who, who have been moved today, but they just feel like, I, I don't know how to pray. I've tried to pray and it's been difficult. Lord, help them to persevere in prayer. Help them to let your word motivate and, and inspire and shape their prayer life. God, I, I pray that, God, that this year, each person here, their pr prayer life would deepen. Their prayer life would get more rich with you. And God, we do, we do pray for our members. God, this is every parent's nightmare. So we just ask you in a fresh way, Lord, we ask for healing. God, we ask you to complete, completely heal her and glorify yourself in that way, God. That is what we want. And yet, God, help, help us, Lord, to be men and women who trust you even when you don't answer our prayers the way we want, especially in those times, God. Don't let us give up on praying. praying. Help us to, to continue to draw near to you. And we pray that for our, our friends. We pray that for our members, God, that they would, they would draw closer to you through this and experience you like they never have before. So God, we thank you that you do listen to us. And we thank you, God, for, for how situations like this show the gravity of the gospel, that this life is so short and so fragile but I thank you that as believers, we will someday experience you wipe every tear from our eyes. 
Thank you there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sickness, and no more death. And we have that hope, Lord Jesus, because of your death for us. Thank you for conquering the grave and, and the eternal hope we have. And we pray all these things in your great name. Amen.